in chapter 1 today. Again, second, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And what we're doing is cruising through the last of Paul's epistles, closing down the Christian life of the Apostle Paul. Remember in, Christ, in Paul's life, we're past, we're past the, 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 the narration of his life recorded in Acts. Acts ends with Paul in prison in Rome. We believe Paul was released from that imprisonment, went probably to Spain and did some other things and some other travels. Later was, again, uh, arrested and imprisoned under Nero and finally executed. And this is the imprisonment that he's in now in Rome, writing to Timothy his last letter in this letter saying, I believe, I know that I am soon going to be poured out as a drink offering. I will be killed and as a witness for Jesus Christ. The occasion for Paul writing this is not that he's dying so much as that Timothy is struggling and Paul is equipping him again as he did in his first epistle. As we've already seen that he had tears, Paul recalls his tears and wants to be with him to rejoice together because of the the idea of being together with other believers is a cause for great joy. And he is also challenging him to kindle afresh his gift, which is in him, the gift of God in the ministry of the gospel. Because in verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of timidity or cowardice, is a better translation, but of power and love and discipline. How desperately do you and I need to hear that God hasn't given us a spirit of cowardice? They're going to not like it if I tell them about Jesus. Fact. They're not going to like it if I take a stand for the Lord Jesus publicly. They're going to say that I'm bringing something that should only be private inner experience into public expression. And that makes people uncomfortable and it's forcing my religion on them and they're not going to like it. I'm going to face social ouster because of my stance for the Lord Jesus Christ. Fact. They're going to hate me for doing it because they hate him. Fact. They're going to raise all kinds of objections to me that some are true and some are not. Some are going to say that they're going to point out correct, correctly that I have limitations and failures and failings. And I don't want those things pointed out because that'll be embarrassing. Fact. They're going to say all kinds of evil things about me that aren't true. They're going to accuse me of all kinds of wicked things. They're going to say I'm self-righteous for saying that you need the righteousness of God. They're going to say that. They're going to say that I think I'm better than everyone else when I really don't usually think that, right? They're going to say all kinds of wicked things about me for Christ's sake, and that's going to hurt. And I'm not going to be popular. I'm not going to have a lot of invitations. I'm not going to get the promotion. I'm not going to have the things and the details of of this life that the world has to offer. Fact. They're going to reject me no matter what I tell them in Ephesus. Fact. The rabbis say that we're not going to hold synagogue unless 10 people get together. But I can only get eight together in Ephesus. Fine. We're not listening to the rabbis. We're listening to the Lord Jesus who told Peter in John 21, feed my sheep. But only six people came on Wednesday night. Feed my sheep. But they're not really interested in the word. And, and, and it's so rich and wonderful, but they don't care. Feed my sheep. 
Fact. These are all true. And we aren't given a spirit of cowardice. We're not supposed to look at these undesirable persecutions from the world in terms of social experience. But if we preach 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 to the world that embraces the alternative and rejects the kingdom of God, then they're going to hate us and say we're guilty of hate speech. Fact. But we're going to preach the word. You might look that one up in your own time. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. It's kind of explicit. What's my point? That you have the spirit of God in you. The Holy Spirit is in your, is, is mediating the word of God to your human spirit. And this complex, this work of the spirit of God through the word of God in your human spirit is not given to cowardice, but what? Power, love, and discipline. But their message seems to be stronger than mine because they're appealing to, uh, to, to sensory perception and, and reason. And I'm appealing to God's revelation. And so I want to talk about what we can see and touch and reason, but what we have to do is say what Jesus said and what God has done. And, and that seems to be a weaker position the way they look at it. But we are given a spirit of power. But they hate me, but we're given a spirit of love and we don't hate them. I don't agree with all the theology of Ray Comfort, but I watched an interesting documentary he put up where he said that his folly, his mistaken steps in front of some atheists caused them to ridicule him and malign him and mock him for years. They called him the banana man because of this little, little routine he did about the way the banana fits in your hand. Maybe you've heard of this, but the atheists love to mock him. Richard Dawkins knows who Ray Comfort is, laughs at him all the time. They have parties to laugh at him. Comfort just kept on telling him he loved him, kept on telling him about Jesus, kept on telling him they're sinners. He likes to do that. You're a sinner. Bringing biblical conviction about sin and the need for a savior. But he points out that um, over 20 years of being mocked by atheists and laughed at becoming sort of a punching bag for them, they will play his entire message to their audiences. They will share the gospel inadvertently by just letting him speak on their, on their messages, on their, on their, uh, they'll interview him and just let him run, just let him go and they'll laugh at him, but he'll get a huge exposure to atheistic audiences with the gospel of Jesus Christ because of their ridicule. And he thinks it's good to be God's fool. Fine. Laugh at me. The folly of God will make foolish the wisdom of the wise. And so we're given a spirit of power. I think it's a good example of that. And of love, we don't hate these people that hate us. We love them. And Timothy, you don't need to go back and be bitter at the Ephesians who have rejected you. You need to go with the spirit of love and sound-mindedness. Translated my Bible, discipline. Sound-mindedness, thinking objectively and clearly from what God has said. I need and you need a refreshment in God's word to rearrange our thinking back to God's way of thinking. Like Romans chapter 12 says, we need this all the time. And the spirit that God is in us, the spirit of God that's working within our human spirit through the word of Christ, it requires this constant readjustment, this constant alignment to the word of God as we're doing right now. So maybe you are in an evangelistic circumstance and you don't even know you're in it. I don't even know that this is a moment for me to share Christ. Well, before you ever think about that person's destiny as it stands now is for the lake of fire. 
As far as you know, this person has not Christ and is headed to the lake of fire. Before you ever think about that and the compassion you might have for that person who will scoff at you, it might occur to you that this will be socially awkward. It might occur to you that this person is going to hate me more than they already do for loving them with the truth. So what? Spirit of courage. It's an important thought in First Timothy, Second Timothy 1, 7. But now we go into verse 8. Therefore, here come the commands. Do not be ashamed of the witness of our Lord. Do not be ashamed of the witness of our Lord. I said it before. The world believes that what it feels like, for the people in the world of a, of a satanically deceived cast of mind, they believe that what they feel like is the, that which is most important. And if they're a little more disciplined than that, they think, what they can see is all that there is, and their reason is only rightly used on what they can see and touch, their senses. And so senses working with reason, and that's what modern-day scientism is about, the scientific community that will, as they say, not let a divine foot in the door. And so these are the realms of the arena in which we're dealing, and this is where people are coming from. And you and I might make, might make the mistake at times talking to someone with that cast of mind. Well, they don't believe in God's revelation. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in this truth. So I shouldn't tell them about it because it won't fit in with our, their already preconceived notions. But that would be where you and I make a mistake. Yeah, they don't believe in it. They won't think this way, but it is nevertheless true. And you, I, you and I have a witness for the truth. The Holy Spirit will break, bring the conviction. He'll break through the, um, the barriers. But what you and I have to do here is not be ashamed. Thousands of people were crucified by the Romans. It was the Roman way of saying, we will crush you. Don't mess with us. We will stick you to wood and suffocate you publicly. That's how they did it. And they did it through scourging, torture you before they, they torture you. And then the slow death of suffocation on crosses. The first known icon, or I shouldn't say icon, but the first known representation of Christ that we found in the ancient world is an old drawing, an old piece of graffiti that's a, a mockery of the cross. It's a man on a cross with a donkey's head. With a man bowing down to it. And someone saying, Behold your Savior, behold your Christ. We've been ridiculed the whole time. Christian is a term of derision, a little Christ. You better know that the world thinks that what we believe is a shame. You better know what the world is, too, and the environment that you live in. We need to be sober and recognize that there is a war on and there is an attack that is constantly bearing on us. What do you do about it? Well, in verse eight, you don't be ashamed of the witness of our Lord. And Timothy, now back to Timothy's personal experience, don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner, but co-suffer. Suffer together. Sukako patheo, suffer together with me. And the gospel, according to the power of God, this is what you need to do, Timothy. So we're going into this knowing we're under opposition and we're going into this knowing that it will be suffering. We're going into this to know that that's where the goods are. Momentary light affliction. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. 
Now we're going to have an excursus from the Apostle Paul on the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. He says, don't be ashamed of the witness of our Lord or don't be afraid to suffer with me in the gospel according to the power of God. You're not doing this alone. You're not out there just hanging between heaven and earth by yourself, just taking it. Jesus did that for you. You are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God through the word of God with the power of God. And now let's talk about God. He saved us and called us with a holy calling. This isn't a word of sequence. He saved us first and then he called us. People want to do this. They want to try to put the, the, the theology in terms of the order in which Paul says something. That, that's not, that's not a, a thing here. That's not what he's saying. But it is true that as far as you are concerned from eternity past, God had a plan for you and he saved you. God saved you and you didn't save yourself. And there's nothing you can do to receive the salvation that God alone offers. It is only the work of Christ. It is only mediated through the Holy Spirit. It is only the plan of God the Father. He saved us and called us with a holy calling. Now, in terms of sequence, I would say this. You, believer, do have a calling on your life. He saved us for our calling. What is God's calling? What is his claim on your life? Well, I would just go to what the specific commands of Scripture say, especially for the community of believers after the cross. That would be the New Testament. And I'd say, what does that amount to? Aggregate all the commands together and you end up with a mosaic of the Great Commission. You end up with the mission that God has for us of making disciples of the nations. He saved us and called us with a holy calling. And that means, beloved, that your life and my life has a purpose and it is not our comfort. It is not the details of our lives of who we will marry or where we live or what about the kids or what about their college or what about my college or what about any of the things that we tend to think of as the thing. All of those things I just mentioned are money, 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 money. And Jesus said you cannot serve God and wealth. None of these things are your life. These are all the details of your life. They're all the context in which we live our lives. The holy calling he's talking about is what Timothy needs to rekindle in context in terms of the ministry of the gospel. And this calling and this salvation is not according to our works. You and I do not earn or deserve the privilege of speaking for Jesus Christ, of being part of the body of Christ, of representing Christ to others. Some of you are here because others in the room have witnessed Christ to you and you have heard and received and you have taken this yoke upon yourselves. But understand, it is the grace of God from beginning to end. I don't deserve to speak for him, but he has made me fit and set me up and empowered me to do so. That's the way we come to this work. So it's not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Not according to our works did he save us or call us for the ministry that he called us for, but according to his own purpose and grace, which grace he gave us in Christ Jesus from eternity past. God had you personally in mind from eternity past, which means that your future, your destiny believer to rule with Christ in the eternal future has always been part of God's arrangement of your life and of his eternity. It has always been God's purpose to do something that is for us almost unthinkable, to take broken, sinful, weak, petty, immature, ignorant, lacking us and 
arrange universal history to our good, to our glory, for his glory. How do I dramatize for you the calling of the gospel? Now, what will happen? People will say this, Pastor, you're, you're taking 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, you're taking it out of context and saying this for all of us. And Paul's just talking to Timothy. This is about a pastor, an apostolic emissary, and he is just specially called out for this work. And so you, you shouldn't put this burden on us. That is a carnal mindset that denies the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints. You're denying the wonder of what God has called you and made you for to say that. Timothy, like Titus, is to be an example. As Peter says in 1 Peter 5, your examples for the flock. The Lord Jesus, the one who inherits all things, is our example in 1 Peter 2. He's your example. We're to follow and imitate God as, as we follow Christ in Ephesians chapter 5. Of course, this is to Timothy about his personal ministry, but that's for you and me too in our personal ministry. That's why you don't call this the pastoral epistles in the sense that it's only about pastors and how to run church. The pastoral epistles, so-called 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy, these letters are written so that we'll know what the Christian life is all about. But now this eternal purpose has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God had you in mind in eternity past, and he's arranged eternity future to your glory and good, according to Romans 8.28. But now in history, not from eternity past, not looking at eternity future, but just now in history, in the time and space in which we live, this purpose, this eternal plan of God has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. What we just did, I'm going to apply it with you again. What we just did is we took our boxes that we place our life in. Let me come downstairs. We got our boxes. This is my work box. I talk a certain way at work. I deal with people a certain way at work. I think a certain way at work. There's not a lot of Jesus in there. But Sunday's coming. Here's my church box. And I conduct myself a certain way at church. Put it on. It's nice to be here. Isn't it pleasant? My soul is dead inside, but my face is smiling on the outside. My church box. We try to keep our work box as far from our church box as possible. Right? And then we've got our friends. These are the influences in our lives. Now, Jesus, he's over here by church. And yeah, I mean, I've got a Jesus box. I've learned enough that it's not just Jesus is in the church box. I've got like a Jesus box over here. And he's, you know, spiritual life stuff. I mean, yeah, I confessed. And then I've got my friends. I've got my friends and they are not going to touch the Jesus box. That will cause problems with the friend box. And these things have to be kept separate because I want my friends and I want their approval. And I really don't even think about it, but I really thrive on it that they like me and think I'm okay. And I, I think they're okay. And I really like to be around them. And so here's my friend's box. And Jesus is over here melting this box. And you're worried now because your friend box is about to have some heat from Jesus' presence in the situation. And now you're coming to a crisis. Don't get me started on the work box. Jesus is coming for that too. 
And eventually, if Jesus Christ becomes the focus of your soul, of your life, as he insists on being, these boxes evaporate. The curse and the chains that you've placed on your life, in your work, among your friends, even in your church life, these will dissolve. These, this curse goes away and you start wanting what Jesus Christ wants for the people at work. And you start acting in such a way that what Christ wants for them can be accomplished through your witness and representation. Your friends stop becoming a means for you to please yourself and advance yourself because after all, I have a pretty good standing. I've got status around these people and they entertain me and I entertain them and it's fun and it's just fun, fun, fun. And you stop using them to entertain yourself and satisfy yourself and you start looking at those friends as people who have no hope in this world unless they have Christ and look around Connecticut, they don't. And your friends start to become the people that you truly love with real compassion. And you know you don't become the sophomoric fool with a Jesus uh, cricket bat. And you start smacking them upside the head with the Jesus message so that they're no longer aware that you care for them at all. And they think that now you're just using them to get notches on your Jesus belt. These are people you truly care about and you want them to have the life and you believe and see over here in your church box that's melting where you believe what you believe on Sunday. You start realizing that it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ and these people don't have him, but he has me among them for him, which, which really helpful is for them too, so that they could have the life. And we're going to let the Lord Jesus Christ, pardon the expression, the sovereign of the universe, we're going to submit ourselves and let him have his way. He's a gentleman. I wish he would force some of your boxes to disintegrate a little faster sometimes. Mine too. There's nothing more important than what Paul is saying here. And this is the, the, this is the way we apply this. Look at your life. And say, what is more important to me than what Paul is saying here? What is more important? You have found the hang up in your discipleship. You found the, way, the place where you're not really discipled up. What's more important than this purpose for our salvation has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who on the one hand abolished death. See what I mean by what's more important? You and I are going to die. I didn't even know I could make poems in, in the pulpit. You and I are going to die. That needs to be on my tombstone. On my grandpa's, it says, keep listening for the shout. It's pretty cool. On John Nelson Darby, it says, uh, unknown yet well-known, I think, or well-known yet unknown. Well-known to God, not known to men. On mine, you and I are going to die. <laughs> but Jesus abolished death. Do you love your people? Do you love your your person in your life? Do you love your, your wife, your mother, your, your family, your friends, your cousins? Do you love them? Then there needs to, to, to rise in your heart if you believe what's being said here that the only answer for their impending death is eternal life in Jesus Christ. He abolished death, but on the other hand, illuminated life, revealed it, and immortality through the gospel. One reason we get up here week after week, 
Hey, did you know Wednesday nights at 7? Anyway, um, one reason we get up here as often as we do to teach the word is because I know and you know that we lose sight of these things in our day to day. If you're not constantly refreshing your soul, I mean daily in the word of God, and even if you are, it is so easy in the circumstances, the troubles, the vicissitudes of life to lose sight of these things. That's part of the, the riddle of life is how do I keep my head focused on eternity, keep, keep on seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father? How do I keep my heart there and yet walk in this life? How do, how do I do that? It's mainly the answer, I think, is prayer. We study the word daily, but we pray constantly. You study the word daily, but you pray constantly. And so this is way more important than anything else you're dealing with because it is life and death. It is eternal life and eternal death. Into which this gospel, into which gospel, this glorious thing of my salvation from eternity past, I was appointed a proclaimer and apostle and teacher to the Gentiles. My resume is that God had a plan from eternity past and he's called us through this saving work. He's called us with a holy calling to this ministry. And Jesus Christ is the executor of this plan and his salvation work on the cross. And he's abolished death and illuminated eternal life. And this message of the gospel that illuminates eternal life is my purpose for existence. The French call it the raison d'etre, the reason I exist. The reason I exist for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And again, as we re- try to reconstruct our little boxes to separate the, the, the key, the, our lives from God in various ways, as we reconstruct our boxes, we will say, this is Paul the apostle to Timothy the apostolic emissary. What does that have to do with me? I was appointed a proclaimer and an apostle and teacher of the Gentiles. I believe that all three of those things are referenced in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, when we're talking about the communicators, the spiritual gifts of those who are communicators. He gave some, or he gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, he gave the evangelists, he gave the pastors and teachers. These are spiritual gifts that the people have that then make them Christ's gift to his church. And that's what every single one of you, every one of us is. We are, every one of us is a gift of God to the body of Christ through our spiritual gift. So no, you are not an apostle, beloved, you're not. You're not an apostle, but you are what you are by God's grace. You are gifted in the gift that you've been given. And believers, you have a spiritual gift for this building up of the body of Christ, for the equipping of the saints. I was appointed a proclaimer, an apostle, and teacher of the Gentiles. For which, verse 12, reason, this appointing of this ministry, I also suffer these things. For which, this reason of the ministry of the gospel, I suffer all these things. But I'm not ashamed. Remember, Paul said, don't be ashamed of the gospel, of the, of the testimony of Jesus Christ. And now he's doing what he'll often do. He sets himself up as an example for Timothy. Just copy out of my playbook. I suffer reproach. I suffer, but I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I believed. And I've been persuaded, past perfect experience. I have been persuaded with ongoing results that he is able to guard my deposit unto that day. 
Whatever I deposit onto him, whatever of my life I give to him, he is entrusting, he is, he is I'm sorry, he is safeguarding until the evaluation when I get my recompense. That day for the Apostle Paul is the judgment of the believer for the works that we've done. Where did I get it? Where do I get the idea that there's going to be a judgment for the works you and I've done in the ministry of the gospel? Where did I get it? I got it out of 1 Corinthians chapter. Oh, we're gonna have to start over. I do this with the kids all the time. If they stop listening, I just start the message over. And they're like, oh no. And I'm like, no, it's the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Where do we hear there's an evaluation for the works that we do in the ministry of the gospel? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Can somebody tell me what this, minis- this, this judgment looks like? Anybody remember what it looks like in 1 Corinthians 3? Operation Singed Eyebrows. What goes on in 1 Corinthians 3 with our judgment? Is he judging us? Is he setting us on fire? He burns the works. Okay, what kind of work materials will be uh, under the blasting furnace there? Do you remember? Wood, hay, and stubble. Some of you are too quick with that. Hopefully not. Wood, hay, and stubble. Or gold, silver, and precious stones go through this furnace uh, fire testing of the works. Right? Now, why do I say this is the works of the ministry of the gospel? Why would I say that? Because with you, hopefully you've done it. I've done it. I've done it with you. First Corinthians three is about the works that Paul and Apollos have done in building up the Corinthians. Every man is going to have to stand and be judged for his own work with what materials he uses. Do you use the right materials or the wrong materials? I'm using the word of God. And so I'm going to get the, the works that I've given. I'm going to get those materials back. Beloved, the rewards passage in first Corinthians three is only about the gospel. It is only about making disciples of the Lord Jesus. It's only about that. If you want to apply Operation Singed Eyebrows to your life, the bonfire of the vanities, and how does God evaluate your life at the judgment seat of Christ, if you want to apply that to you, understand that the materials involve the building project of the body of Christ. It is the making of disciples. What I'm saying is, this isn't just for Paul and Timothy and Pastor Dave and those people that are really doing this for their living. This is all of us. We are all supposed to be examples for you in the doing this yourselves, the making disciples yourselves with the giftedness God has given you. And the gifts aren't all listed and you don't need to know what your gift is. You need to know you have one. You'll function in it as you grow spiritually and do what the word says. How is the apostle Paul not ashamed? See, this is, this is what changes my life in the study of the Bible. Like you, I read through. That's not on my tombstone. Like you, I read through. I'm not going to put that on my tombstone. You and I are going to die. That's way better. I read through, but then I know, because someone taught me, I know that if I slow down and look in some detail, I look at relationships between clauses, especially I'll see things that I didn't get when I just read through and it'll change my life. And I pray that it'll change yours. I hope in the Lord that's expect that it will. When Paul says for, when he says for, he's explaining to you how it is that he can be the most despised and maligned person considered the scum of the earth by the Romans, how he can be this person that is rejected by his own countrymen and laughed to scorn by the Gentiles at the same time. 
a small minority or remnant of people will listen and fully inculcate in what Paul is saying and join with him in this. A small remnant of you will join with me in this. You will join with me because I'm committed this way. I'm pastoring you. I'm just pointing to Jesus. And so we'll do this together. A small remnant will say, this is my life. And everyone else can ridicule us and laugh us to scorn. How is it that I can do this? How can Paul do this and not be ashamed? The mechanics of Paul's motivation are evident to us in verse 12. The explanation is, I know whom I believed. The only way you can avoid being crushed by the shame of the gospel is your rapport with Jesus Christ. The only thing that will save you from failure in the ministry of the gospel that God has commended to you, not to me, to you. The only way you can be a witness for Jesus Christ is that you know whom you believed. The more you draw near to him, James 4, the more he'll draw near to you. It's a promise. For I know whom I believed. And because of prior work that he's done with me in the word, I have been persuaded in the past with ongoing results in the present that I'm speaking to you now, this is settled in me is what the perfect tense does here. I've been persuaded that he is powerful. He is able. This deposit will keep. That which I've entrusted to him will have dividends when it matters. The time that I forsook money and the pursuit of riches in the interest of pursuing Christ and his interest in the gospel, that sacrifice, and it is that rejection of this world for storing up treasure in the next, that deposit will hold. Thieves can't steal it. Moths and rust can't destroy it. This is held by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've trusted him and he's able to hold that deposit. So when it comes time, for me to say, Lord, what will there be for me? The Lord smiles and says, you can't imagine what I have in store for you. Where'd I get it? Keep going back to the Bible. It's a kind of a habit I have. It's not, it's not a nervous tick. It's just the only answer I ever have. Matthew 19, verse 27. Then Peter said to Jesus, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Do you think that, that Paul is any different from Peter? See, the people want to make Paul as the separate category, right? He's the new apostle. Paul is an apostle of Jesus who just like Peter can say what, Peter's about to, what Peter says. Paul says, it's all about Jesus for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. And so I've entrusted myself to him and he has the deposit. Peter said to Jesus, behold, we've left everything and followed you. This is Matthew 19, 27. What then will there be for us? This is in the context of the wealthy young man who can't get into heaven because he is depending on his riches. The rich young man can't get to the kingdom. Jesus says it's impossible for him. Easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to get in heaven. Well, then who can get in? With man, it's impossible. With God, it's possible. There's nothing you can do. There's no amount you could give to God. All you can do is receive the gift he gives you. That's the setup for the work of Christ and the offer of salvation through the gospel. Behold, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? 
Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You disciples, there's twelve of you for a reason, and it's a kingdom coming reason. And it is Israel over the nations and the kingdom of Christ, ruled over by these church disciples who become the body of Christ, these Jewish disciples. You don't think there is a specific plan that God has for future Israel? It involves church apostles ruling over Israel. Verse 29, and everyone, now this is everyone. You 12 are going to sit on the 12 thrones, but listen, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last first. This passage and what Paul is saying here, this is why I call Matthew a primer on discipleship. Most of the discourses of the Lord Jesus are about what it means to be his disciple, the counting of the cost. And that's what I'm telling you about the boxes. What box in your life doesn't belong to Jesus? You found your idol. What area of your life is not under his provision, is under his direction, is his if he wants it. Paul has no money. He has no land. He has no lasting legacy after the flesh. We know of nothing of Paul's children. We don't, we don't really understand much about his marital status. The one thing we know is he says, I wish you would be as I am uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, talking to widowers and widows. We have no idea about his domestic life. He says, I, I could have a wife as Peter, but I, but I don't because of the gospel. It, it's, he's too busy for this. In other words, he doesn't have time. What are the details of your life that drive your motivations, your priorities, that cause you to worry, keep you up at night? There are five or six different websites I check news on. I read the headlines and then I shut it off and get away from it. And more and more as we go forward in history, because it's hard to watch this thing sink so fast. It, it hurts to watch. And I have a prayer life about this, but it's not my life. Because this is my life. I won't be ashamed of the gospel, whether it's the persecution, the light persecution of somebody that just laughs at me for it in the time in which we live now, or the metal-fisted persecution that says, if you say that again, we're going to shut your mouth for you. And we, like Peter, have to say, you decide whether we should obey God or men. Beloved, we're in prosperity. We're rich. We're comfortable. You're in the most comfortable seats we could find for you. Everybody knows it's almost 12. Oh, yeah, right. Almost oh, 12. Got to quit. Everybody knows that we're at the end. And we also, hopefully, you all know the experience of a break because your brain's tired and we've done all this. You've tried to stay with it and I applaud you for it. 
We're about to have the break. We are doing this in prosperity and comfort, and it is easy to get here. It is easy to get here. As things get more difficult, we're going to wish we had. We're going to long for the days where we could get here in freedom and speak out in the open. We weren't hiding. But whether we're in freedom or whether we lose our freedom because of the inevitable crush of Satan's world toward totalitarianism and globalism, you and I need to not be ashamed because of who we believed. The way you avoid the, way you avoid the shame, the way you avoid being crippled in your ministry is you keep your eyes on Jesus Christ because he can guard what you've entrusted to him unto the day of Christ, until the judgment seat of Christ. Father, we want to be about your work. Some of us need to make some serious changes in our lives to be about your work. Father, all of us need to make a daily adjustment, a daily reckoning, a daily increasing of our understanding, a daily renovation of our thinking. We need this every day. Father, if there are hangups in our lives where we've said, this is not going to be under Christ, help us see it. Help us submit to you, to your son. If there are people in our lives that it's either them or Jesus, help us see that and make it clear that we stand with your son for their sake, for the salvation of those people as we bear witness to their lives. Father, if there are children among us who are struggling with the attack of the world, of its, of its enticements, if they're consumed by the pursuit of fun to the exclusion of righteousness or even on par with righteousness, Father, save them. Deliver them from that snare of your enemy. We ask in Jesus' name, we all said, amen.